This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Indianapolis offers cheap housing to entice teachers to stay. Hear why our teachers think that's not such a good idea. Plus, the Betsy breakdown is back. Our Secretary of Education has been laying low, but we have a lot to talk about in this new year. Those topics, plus how do our teachers stay healthy during cold and flu season? Their answers aren't necessarily encouraging. All that and kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Kirsten Brown, what do you do in education? I am a high school principal. Paul Donovan, what do you teach? I teach uh, the upper level math, the college credit math. And Jamie Myers, what do you teach? Eighth grade applications. All of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City area. Well, let's get to it. Teacher turnover is a problem in a lot of places. It's especially acute in Indianapolis, Indiana. Get this. Each year, the district loses, on average, 400 teachers who either leave the district entirely or switch roles. That's a turnover rate of roughly 20%. The city is now taking a very interesting step to try to convince more teachers to stay long-term, Selling them houses. It's part of Indianapolis's Near East Renewal Area. This is a plot of land roughly two blocks by two blocks just east of downtown Indianapolis that the city's trying to revitalize. And to that end, they are building or rehabbing more than two dozen homes that are being sold specifically to teachers at lower than market value rates. Three-bedroom prefab homes start at about $135,000, but if a teacher makes 120% or less of the Marion County median income, that's where Indianapolis is at, which amounts to about $59,000, and they're able to purchase a home for even less than that price. The program is open to Indianapolis public school teachers and public charter school teachers in that area. This was all the brainchild of Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett, who actually unveiled the idea when he was running for mayor in 2015. He now says, quote, not only are these homes an investment towards their future as educators, they offer our city's educators the chance to establish their roots in the very same community they serve. Ground was broken on this development in November. Several of the homes have been completed and sold, according to the Near East Renewal Area's website. And the whole project expects to be fully up and running by the start of next school year, fall 2018. Well, we've talked about teacher pay and perks before on this show and how it's often not enough to make you feel well compensated for the work you do. Would you take a house? Uh, well, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this, but I will say that part of the requirements for having house, you have to be there for five years. In so, this pro- yeah, in this project, yeah, you have to stay in it for five years. Yeah. They really are looking for s- teachers to stay in their districts, which is, you know, comforting because that means hopefully that the job would also be there for five years. You say mixed feelings, though. Yeah, what, what, because... What are your mixed feelings? Well, in the NPR interview, the uh, one of the participants said, well, why don't you just pay us more and then we'll stick around. Mm. And that, like you said, is always one of our our talking points is if we had the money, we could live wherever we wanted. We wouldn't have to live in a teacher community. We wouldn't have to, you know, get a subsidized house if we had 
the salary to live wherever we wanted. And then maybe we would stay because we had the money to be a valuable citizen in that community. And it's, I get what they want out of the teachers. Like I get that they want to show that they're doing something to maintain their teachers because of their high turnover rate. But at the same time, like you have to live in that neighborhood and you have to live there for five years and you have to have like teacher neighbors, which you already have at school. So I mean, <laughs> you like, I already work with you. I don't want to live next to you. <laughs> I mean, some of them maybe. Well, Paul Kirsten, what are you thinking? Well, I, it reminded me of every few years the word goes around, or I, I see this thing that come come teach in Hawaii, and uh, um, they're looking for teachers to come to Hawaii. And uh, why would you why would you not want to live in paradise? And everybody's like, "Wow, that'd be so awesome to teach in Hawaii." And I was a little. Suspicious. If it was so great, why do they need teachers? Always. You saying you, you get the you get like emails or do you or get like e- or, yeah or, emails or or or, or, or like, word goes around word goes around or emails or there's articles about it, and so I did some research and I found that the reason why people Hawaii still needs teachers is because nobody sticks around because it's too expensive, and if you ask the the school districts, they say yeah if you come to Hawaii you're gonna need a roommate. <laughs> and so, uh, oh so, so when I uh, heard about heard about this house subsidizing thing, my first thing is, well, why are people leaving so much? Right. And would so, it would it be? Would so it this be... doesn't necessarily address an, an underlying cause or yeah. an underlying right. problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten, you might come at it from a different perspective. You are the principal of a charter school in Kansas City, where you're you're very intentionally trying to build up a community, not necessarily a housing community, but a, a community, an education community. Um, what do you think of this idea in Indianapolis? You know, I think it's, you know, although the intent is very great behind it, trying to maintain or retain their teachers and possibly being used as a way to recruit teachers as well. Um, I just wonder about this idea of a teacher neighborhood. You have to live in this one neighborhood and you always have to be around teachers. And um, although I see the benefit for collaboration and things like that, um, sometimes I want to escape that world. (laughs) I am not going home to collaborate. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. I want to let my hair down and meet some other people in different fields. Um, Perhaps if there was some type of um, subsidized housing and you could choose like a location of your choice. I had some neighborhoods you can select from. That would be ideal. Even a tax cut, something that... You know, could mm-hmm. help. Jamie, you said you know higher salary, like that's the biggest you know thing. But besides a higher salary, I guess, are there other incentives that you have seen or, or experienced in your careers? I mean, besides subsidized housing, which is a, kind of a unique example, um, <laughs> that your 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 districts or your employers offer that that really do entice you to stick around or to to stay. In my district, we have a stipend for college credits. So you get $1,000 towards college credits um, for reimbursement. So they they want you to educate yourself in the profession and maintain your license, and they're willing to put money towards that. So that was a big one for, for yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten or, or Paul, do you have experienced other incentives or perks that have been advantageous for you? Yeah, I think um, my district, we really want to make sure that we're attracting quality talent. So we look at what other districts pay, and we try to pay as much or more than some of the top-paying districts. Paul? for the On the monet- monetary side, uh, 
my district has one of the better retirement systems yeah. in the country. And so that's an incentive to stay so I can participate in that. But other than that, I've kind of accepted the fact that I'm going to be poor forever. And so uh, for me, the perk is, do I like where I'm working at? Do, do I have fun? If I have fun, then that takes care of a lot of monetary perks because the stress is lower. And and uh, so for me, that's that's the perk I look for. You've accepted being poor forever. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, knowing nods and looks around the table, I should say. <laughs> um, so final question, if your district offered $135,000 prefab three-bedroom homes, would you take it? Nope. No. Absolutely not. Three no's. <laughs> no. I got to say, I'm a little surprised. <laughs> I want to know. I thought, when I read about this, I thought this was a good deal. Well, <laughs> I, I I just keep going back to the idea that it's a it's a, a village of teachers. <laughs> like, can I just, like, choose which house I get, like, in the city and not be in a village of teachers? Yeah, not so, anything against anyone I teach with, but. So it's the, it's the idea of being dictated, like, yeah. where you would live and. and yeah. And yeah. you, got, you guys all seem pretty strongly against the idea of living around other teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what is, I mean, what is behind that? Well, I work with teachers. <laughs> I don't want to live with them. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. It's been a while, but it's back finally, the Betsy Breakdown. Let's kick this Betsy breakdown off with something the secretary said earlier this month while addressing the National Conference for the Conservative-Leaning American Enterprise Institute. She made a lot of statements there that many educators who oppose her policies would probably find objectionable, but she made some headlines when she said this, quote, I agree with President Trump, Common Core is a disaster, and at the U.S. Department of Education, Common Core is dead. Is Common Core dead to you? I want to ask her if she even knows what Common Core right. is. Um, it's it's not dead nope. in my district by any means. We've based all of our curriculum in the last five years on the Common Core. We've worked hard to develop that curriculum ourselves based around the Common Core and purchase materials and textbooks based on the Common Core. So I don't really even know. You're deep into it. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> and it's not going anywhere. No. Yeah. No. Paul Kirsten. The Common Core dead? In my district, we're in the same boat. Everything's aligned to Common Core. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who think that it, it like dictates what students, what material students have to use, what books they have to read, what things they have to learn. But it's not. It's it, not. In a, in a sense, it's a little bit more controlled than pre-Common Core. But I see the reasoning behind it because they want to standardize all the states. So if a, if a student gets through one semester of Algebra 2 and then moves to a different state over Christmas and goes into Algebra 2, there's no break. They're learning the same thing that they would have learned. Theoretically, so, they have the same goals. At the, right. The same, the same education yeah. at the same time. So there's no big gaps or holes to fill. Now, as with everything this big, there there are glitches. But 
I think the basic idea is is worthy. Yeah. So resoundingly, Common Core, not dead. No. Next topic. Recently, three civil rights organizations led by a nonprofit called Serve Justice sued Betsy DeVos and the U.S. Department of Education for rolling back Obama-era protections for people who report sexual assault. Last year, you might remember, DeVos's education department raised the standard of proof accusers need in sexual assault cases and also moved to put more cases of alleged sexual misconduct into mediation as opposed to criminal proceedings. DeVos said that Obama-era rules were too heavily weighted towards accusers and that the changes her department was instituting would bring back more fairness to investigations of alleged sexual assault. This new lawsuit says not only that the policy changes are unlawful and procedurally deficient, those are quotes, but also based on unfounded generalizations and discriminatory stereotypes about women. One of DeVos's aides famously told the New York Times that 90% of sexual assault complaints on college campuses were the result of drunken hookups the girls later regretted. This lawsuit comes even as the DOE has confirmed it is investigating Michigan State University's handling of complaints against former MSU Athletics and USA Gymnastics team Dr. Larry Nasser, which is uh, sexual misconduct of an entirely different variety, maybe. Uh, DeVos called Nasser's crimes aberrant and disgusting in a statement last week. So my question to the teachers, I guess, is how can uh, Betsy DeVos and the the Department of Education make you as educators feel better or worse about how uh, federal officials are holding people accountable for sexual misconduct in the education setting? That 90 percent drunken hookups comment is disgusting to me because that's that's the cultural view. And you you think that 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 coming from from someone who works at a high level in the DOE, you know, reveals some kind of cultural mindset or or, or bias towards the topic. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to work for as educators against. We're trying to work against this rape culture, you know, view that men just can't help themselves if someone looks like that or women can't help themselves if they dress like this. And that's it's a heavy burden and a high mountain to climb. Uh, uh, Kirsten Paul, you feel like you're you're fighting uphill on this or? Do you feel like the situation has changed in the last year or two? When I first saw that story, I thought I misread it. Which story are you talking about? When about raising the uh, the, oh. the accusation standards for the victims, uh, and I, I just I I could not understand why anybody would 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 think that the victims have the advantage in the situation. I feel like any victim who's going to speak out is already fighting against so much internally, and. I just can't imagine how much strength it would take to actually call forth your accuser. And so by saying that they have an advantage, they're actually at a disadvantage. And so putting even more restrictions on what they're saying to be the burden of proof is so just terrifying. Why would anyone report anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, final topic in the Betsy breakdown, the Department of Education did recently finish its first significant enforcement action, a 15-month investigation that began during the Obama administration, now concludes that Texas broke federal law by arbitrarily capping the percentage of students who could receive special education services. This was the result of an investigative report published by the Houston Chronicle in 2016 that showed years ago Texas education officials set 8.5% as the target for the number of students who could receive special education services. That was a completely arbitrary number. That means hundreds of thousands of students who may have needed special ed services were not given them over the course of a decade or more. 
We actually talked to the reporter who broke that story, Brian Rosenthal, in a past extra credit episode of No Wrong Answers. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you've not. But anyway, DeVos's education department concludes what Texas did was wrong. Texas has changed the policy. It no longer imposes that limit. And the DOE's recent report is also prompting state officials to say they are continuing to look into how they can do better. Did Betsy DeVos score a win here <laughs> with you all? <laughs> sure. I mean, I'll I'll give I'll give her one. Um, uh, she still has quite a deficit, but uh, uh, this was kind of a no-brainer to think Texas screwed up. So I mean, hooray for Betsy to recognize slam that slam dunk. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say it comes on the on the heels of of a lot of people being made nervous and anxious by comments she made during her confirmation hearing about federal special education law, the IDEA Act. Uh, does, does this at all assuage? Any fears you might have had that she would not be an advocate for special ed students? It doesn't completely assuage it. I think that it is a step in the right, you know, it does give me some comfort, at least a little knowing that, um, you know, this was handled in the, in the manner in which it was handled. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. I feel like she, if she had done anything different, then she would be under even more blast. Like, there's no way she couldn't have ruled that they weren't meeting their burden. And that was this edition of the Betsy Breakdown. <laughs> the three-day government shutdown ended in part to an old classroom technique many teachers might have recognized. A bipartisan coalition of senators hammered out a deal on a short-term spending plan that ultimately ended the shutdown using a talking stick during negotiations in the Capitol Hill office of Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins. In the days after the shutdown ended, Collins paraded the stick around to TV interviews. It's brightly colored and beaded and is apparently originally from Africa. And Collins said as lawmakers were negotiating, they could not talk unless they had the stick in their hands. That's how talking sticks work, as most (laughs) teachers know. (laughs) So it just goes to show us if we needed the reminding that adults oftentimes don't have the socio-emotional complexities of life figured out. Even U.S. senators, maybe especially U.S. senators. But this got us thinking, how do our teachers try to teach their students how to be deliberative and conscientious when uh, conversing with other people. How do they facilitate discussions in their classrooms? Do any of you, have you ever used a talking stick before or something like it? No talking sticks at the no. table. No. Well, I, I teach math. There's not a whole lot of people that want to uh, jump in. Um, and so if I had used a talking stick, then that would just pretty much cut down all conversation probably. <laughs> uh, couple of humanities teachers or former humanities teachers here. How do you facilitate uh, discussion in class? How do you, what, what are you trying to, to teach your kids? Well, I, I definitely try to build an air of respect as far as you don't have to agree with them, but you need to make sure that you're at least listening. And actually, I, I do say, or at least pretend to listen, which means to sit there and, and not talk over them because I can't get in your brain and turn on the listening button but you need to at least pretend to listen. And I know that may seem not right, but I teach middle school. And <laughs> so if I can get them to at least just be quiet while their classmates are talking. That's a major victory. It's a, it's a, it's a win, I Pretending think. Pretending to listen is a big step Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. For, for middle school kids. Yeah. But if we're having a formal discussion, um, I oftentimes give them playing cards. And they have to, like, they have to spend their playing cards. So they get two playing cards. So that means they have to make two comments that me as the moderator, that I as the moderator seem, see as important. So if they make a comment like, yeah, I agree, I'm like, nope, keep your card, you know. 
So if we're having like an actual formal discussion, there are tokens similar to talking sticks, but um, that they have to. So, the, but they have, but they have to make a, a comment that's more substantive than yeah. Yes, I agree. In exactly. order to play their conversation yes, card. Exactly. Are there ever students that want more than two conversation cards? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and there, and I always say, well, once everyone spends their cards, you're more than welcome to to add to that. <laughs> Do they get to trade? I mean, can they trade cards? <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no bartering of cards. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting. I had not heard of of uh, conversation cards before, uh, Kirsten. What? Either in your own classroom experience or now that you, you lead your own school, what do you see other teachers doing to try to facilitate um, effective classroom discussions? Yeah, so one thing that I've seen that's been really effective, and I did this as well, um, establishing really clear norms around like talk habit, habits um, and the students collaborating to establish those. Um, so they have ownership in it. For example, one speaker at a time, you can respond by using, referring to what they said. So this like is that. like something that you actually do before the conversation mm-hmm. starts. Like you, you have kids talk about the rules exactly. of the conversation. Exactly. And what, what are some rules that kids often come up with on their own? Yeah, one speaker at a time, of course, comes up. Also, to like actively listen so that if you're called upon to respond to what they're saying, you can do so in an effective manner. Um, see teachers do this a lot with like one mic or one voice. So to remind students, hey, one person has a floor at a time to reinforce those. No, that's like a talking stick. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a particularly memorable experience you've had where a discussion has truly blown up (laughs) oh well recently i had um i i call my bell work deep thoughts deep in quotation marks because sometimes it is like saturday night live deep thoughts yeah kind of (laughs) (laughs) yes they don't get it but um and one of my most recent ones was about climate change and that was my eighth hour i was like okay so i'm feeling attacked we're gonna stop <laughs> like, why because your students what they don't they, they don't believe it they, they don't believe in climate no. change no they think that it's just part of the normal um ice age like you know and the the shifts are normal like yes there is climate change but humans have not done anything to accelerate it and i'm like okay and they were very passionate about that like there's no way. This is normal. This is how things go. And I was like, and to be clear, this probably wasn't the point of like what lesson you were trying to no. teach. It was just supposed to be like a. <laughs> it was a, just supposed a, to be a warm up. Yeah, and it took like 30 minutes, so it was just supposed to be like a five minute, like, hey, think about it type thing, because we are starting argumentative writing, and so I wanted to see like both sides of the argument, and there weren't both sides. <laughs> I was, I was by myself. So. Oh, Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our final topic today, uh, this flu season, one of the worst in recent memory, is currently at its peak. Health experts and doctors say this year's flu strain is one of the most pervasive and virulent of modern times. The CDC reports that every state except Hawaii has reported widespread influenza outbreaks. Paul, it's another reason to go to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) There have been more than 12,000 flu-related hospitalizations nationwide since last October, according to the CDC. And the estimated rate of people seeking treatment from their doctors for flu-like symptoms was at 6.6%. Normally, the baseline is around 2%. Not that this is a competition, but by some estimates, the Kansas City metro area, where No Wrong Answers tapes, is actually an epicenter for this flu season. The smartphone thermometer app Kinsa tracks real-time user data and says Missouri at one point had the highest flu infection rate of any state in the country, and Kansas was not far behind, making Kansas City, which is right on the border between the two states, as one Kinsa executive said, one of the, quote, sickest cities in the country. 
and it's not a stretched, and I don't think the, the good sick kind. Right? <laughs> uh, it's not a stretch to say teachers are on the front line of this. Flu, of course, is easily contagious, communicable through coughs and sneezes or just being close to someone who has it. Uh, you fight it, of course, by constantly washing your hands and disaffecting your environment. Teachers know this better than anyone. So we have three, I think, by all appearances, healthy educators here today. Uh, they've survived the flu season so far, knock on wood. Uh, how do you stay healthy during flu, flu and cold season? Blind luck. <laughs> really? You don't, nothing more than that? No strategy? No. I mean, I got my flu shot in October, and uh, so I did that. But, I mean, when you're around... You know, hundreds of kids a day. I mean, I mean, I do the basics, wash my hands, do the hand sanitizer. But, and I've had probably five or six students since since uh, the semester started be gone with the flu. As far as like they've all come back. So as far as I know, that it was not that severe. But I mean, it's just when you're teaching, it's kind of a crapshoot with what you get. Yeah, in my opinion. Uh, so I am one of the non-herders. The sickest I've been was the last time I got a flu shot, so I don't get my flu shot every <gasps> year. I know. I'm yeah. I'm anti-herd, I guess. Well, you're uh, saying because one year you did get the flu shot and then you got the flu really bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, comparatively, I used to get the flu shot all the time in high school and I didn't get sick. But the sickest I'd been, like almost hospitalization, was when I got a flu shot. And then also, I think the numbers are really far down on the effectiveness of the flu shots this year. Like uh, because of the, the the strain is yeah is well, they very picked new the wrong and, one and evolving and yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually kind of think that my exposure to illness is what has built my immunity, <laughs> if that's even sensical, uh, because I'm around so many students. This is what you tell yourself. Yes, I tell myself <laughs> that I have built my immunity because I'm around all of these different germs for ten years. Kirsten, any tricks? Yeah, we just have sanitizer everywhere. Like, as, wherever we can put it, every single classroom, every common area. Um, but personally, I love the Zyacam zinc things that you, like, swab across your nose when you feel it coming on. It knocks it out within, like, one to two days nice. every time. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you find us, subscribe. Leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep that conversation going. Now, kids these days, Kirsten, what are kids at your school into? Hot sauce with everything. They bring bottles of hot sauce, especially the large ones you get from Costco. They carry them around. Oh, my gosh. And, and put it on everything? Everything. You could imagine. Like sweets, Ooh. savory things. They love it. <laughs> so at lunch? Oh, yeah. That became a big thing. We had to, like, figure out some procedures to keep that in check. <laughs> what did you do? Yeah. So it got to the point where we had, like, a whole counter of hot sauces with like kids would bring in and they like, bring it out their backpacks so and we had to like ban it for a while so we can get under control. <laughs> contraband. Yeah, contraband hot sauce. Uh, Paul, what are your kids into? Well, I have kind of an, an opposite version of kids these days. I since I teach the upper level, 
math uh, classes, they can opt to take it for dual credit, for college credit. And so they did that at the beginning of the semester. And I got about 50 students who applied to take the classes for dual credit. Only about nine of them were valid because there were scores, there were cutoff scores for ACT or an Accuplacer placement test. And the, the students skipped over all the instructions and just <laughs> looked for something they had to fill out. And then they filled it out and they gave it to me. And then they were really upset that um, they didn't, that they weren't qualified to take it. And so that we had to have a talk about when you're grown up, when you have instructions to read, it's probably a good idea to read them. <laughs> um, and that, that hit some of them. Like, uh, I mean, it's not like the Apple terms. And so. <laughs> well, you just click scroll it and say, through scroll and say, through. I agree. Right. So that was, uh, so that's where there's. Life is not the Apple term. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, Jamie, what are your kids into? Oh, um, being overly familiar with their teachers. Like. <laughs> Which they've been, they've been, kids have been into that for a while. Yeah. Yes. And it's not getting any better. Um, they, we've had ha several discussions this semester in the short weeks that we've even been in about we're not your friends we are your teachers you do not get to tell me like you don't get to talk to me the same way that you talk to your friends so give me give me examples of how your kids can be over familiar with you and your colleagues I asked a student to focus on his work like I was like focus on your work and he did the same thing back to me and then he was like your girlfriend looks like my mother I'm like it, I guess it's some sort of meme that's out there right now, but I was like, I would have been mortified to say anything like that to an adult, let alone a female teacher that I have to see every day. So, yeah, there were consequences for that, but... Um, very over-familiar. Very over-familiar. Not your friend. I am your teacher. Uh, well, we can stay f at least familiar with each other, not overly familiar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our teachers this week, Kirsten Brown, Paul Donovan, Jamie Myers. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice, but not too nice, <laughs> or overly familiar, to your teachers. <laughs>